This is an ABC podcast. Welcome to the Philosopher's Zone. This is David Rutledge. How are you doing this week? Are you feeling fulfilled? Are you attaining your goals? Is your life proceeding in accordance with your values? Do you know what your goals and values are? If I were to ask you to name your values, you'd probably come up with a familiar list that includes family and friendship and giving back to the community, that sort of thing. But then, as you think more about it, you might come to realise that those abstract values don't always translate neatly into specific identifiable goals. You might also find that those values don't always sit comfortably side by side. There might be a conflict between friendship and family, for example, where you feel you're not able to devote as much time as you think you should to one of those because it takes time away from the other. So I read a really good book recently that addresses these issues in a helpful and philosophically interesting way. The title is What Do You Want Out of Life? A Philosophical Guide to Figuring Out What Matters. And when I read it, I was struck by two things. One was just what an excellent book it is. But the other was that question of why philosophy keeps returning to this question of how to live well and what constitutes the good life. So I was very keen to get the author on the program, and this week I managed to do just that. Her name is Valerie Tiberius. She's a philosophy professor at the University of Minnesota. People with very different theories of well-being, including psychologists who study, you know, now they're psychologists who study happiness and well-being, they agree, even if they have very different theories, they agree on the basic components of a good life for people. So, you know, things like relationships and meaning and pleasure, maybe, maybe knowledge and exploration. There's also a lot of agreement that money and fame for their own sake are, are bad for people. They're not good in themselves. And I think the ancients obviously knew some of these things also. Um, but it's, I guess I just think it's the human condition that we have to keep questioning and reaffirming these, these bits of wisdom. So it doesn't seem quite fair to say we've made no progress, uh, because the process is part of the progress to continue to reflect on these questions and reaffirm what we maybe know from human history. So I think what there isn't agreement about in philosophy is the sort of deep theoretical explanations for why these things that are good for us are good for us. And I guess my view is that one reason for that is that philosophers are looking for a universal theory. They're looking for the one theory that ruled them all, you know. Um, but our questions about how to live our lives are really diverse and they just don't lend themselves to a single answer. Like, you know, you might want to know how to live your own life well. Uh, you want to know how to raise your children, how to treat strangers, maybe how to treat animals, how to arrange our politics uh, so that we promote the happiness of the citizens. All those things are the practical interests that we have in these ideas about a well-lived life. So there's this philosopher, um, Anna Alexandrova at Cambridge, who, who thinks basically we need a different theory for every context. We're, not, we're never going to have the one theory to rule them all. And I don't know if I totally agree with that, but I do think she's right that we're pulled in these different directions, and that fuels some of these endless debates. Yeah, I, I think it's important to distinguish what you're writing about from the familiar genre of uh, happiness, self-help literature, if you like, because that genre tends to come from a psychological perspective, a therapeutic perspective, 
What does it mean to consider these things from a philosophical perspective and what's the advantage of taking a philosophical perspective? One thing I want to say is I'm a big fan of therapy. I've benefited from therapy and I think some therapy is actually quite a lot like philosophy. So cognitive behavior therapy that aims to uncover the false beliefs that are fueling your negative emotions that actually has a lot in common with stoicism. So I think with certain kinds of therapy and certain kinds of philosophy, there might not actually be a great divide. But some of the psychological self-help literature these days is focused on life hacks or uh, practical steps you can take to create more positive feelings. And I'm, you know, I have nothing against life hacks, but uh, my book, is not full of life hacks. Um, the book, I think, might make people feel better, but that isn't really the point of it. I'm trying to provide guidance for reflection on how to live your life and how to think about what really matters to you. So here's an example from, from my life. I'm a fairly anxious person, and I've known about various strategies to reduce stress and to elevate positive feelings for many years, but I haven't really committed to anything long enough for it to make any difference. I've dabbled in various things, yoga and meditation and, you know, whatever was going, but I just didn't, I didn't ever make time for it. I didn't really commit. But then recently, actually, partly in the process of writing this book, I really thought about the importance to me of reducing my stress and anxiety. And I, you know, I thought about how that plays into my ability to fulfill the other things I value. And that did actually help me to take some steps that seemed to be working. So I guess I think like, if you're gonna commit to a life hack, you really have to value your own good mood and peace of mind. And, you know, my book doesn't give you five steps to reduce stress, but the hope is, my hope is, it could help you figure out how valuable it is to you to reduce stress so that you can prioritize that, or how valuable it is to you to do whatever it is that is your deepest value. Well, let's talk about value, because one of the key concepts in your book is value fulfillment theory. Tell us about that. What is value fulfillment theory, and why is it more useful than other philosophical recipes for the good life? So value fulfillment theory, which I really kind of lay out in a different book, um, not the, the most recent one, uh, but it's the theory that a life that's good for you is a life in which you achieve or fulfill the things that you value over time. It doesn't necessarily mean that the values that you have right now are the best ones and that it's the fulfillment of those values that's best for you, because there could be ways that your current values could contribute to greater fulfillment in your life overall if they were changed. So for example, you could be internally conflicted about your values. You could you know, love dancing, but think that it's a waste of time or your values could conflict with each other. Say, you know, your career as a corporate lawyer makes it hard to be a good friend, something like that. So I think of well-being as the fulfillment of your appropriate values, which means the values that are, they're not full of conflict, not internally conflicted and not conflicting with each other and with the world. 
I guess I think it's a pretty useful theory for figuring out how to help people because I think we want to help people in ways that they can understand, in ways that they can take on board. And if you tie your helpfulness into their values, that happens more easily than if you're imposing evaluative standards on them that they don't relate to, that don't relate to their own values. So there are certain philosophers who defend objective theories of well-being where there is the concern that if you use a theory like that to help someone, you're imposing an external standard on them. So I guess I think the sort of subjective uh, flavor of the value fulfillment theory is a better way to go for that reason. I think, you know, hedonism is another big theory in philosophy. I think hedonism would be a very useful theory if it were true, but I think there are other things that are valuable besides pleasure. So, you know, it's a nice theory because it's so simple and it makes helping people a kind of no-brainer, you know? I mean, you would know how to do it if hedonism were true. Um, it's just that I think there are other things that matter. This is David Rutledge. My guest this week is Valerie Tiberius from the Department of Philosophy at the University of Minnesota. We're talking about values and goals and the perplexing question of how to figure out exactly what those things are and how to fulfill them. Just one of those everyday casual conversations that you might have with your next door neighbor. And you're listening to it here in the Philosopher's Zone. Part of the discussion in your book is taken up with this question of how we can come to identify our values. And that's an interesting issue to address because I think many of us instinctively feel that we know what our values are. You know, family, friends, community, finding meaning in our work. It's the fulfillment part where things get tricky. And we we can talk about that in a minute. But what do you see as the difficulty in identifying our values in the first place? I agree with what you just said that we typically know what our most basic values are in an abstract way. So the list you just gave, family, friends, community, finding meaning in our work, that's what we'd say if, you know, if if a psychologist surveyed us and asked, what are your values? Most of us would probably have those things on our list, maybe a few other things too, maybe stability or some or a kind of um, spiritual connection or something like that. I think what we're often not sure about is what our values mean. So what does success in terms of those values amount to? What does it mean to be a good family member? What does it mean to be a good husband or father or sister or or daughter-in-law? What kind of work? What kind of family? And how important are these things with respect to each other so that when they conflict, which one is going to win and how are you going to negotiate that conflict? Those are the things I think we're not so sure about. We know our values in this abstract kind of way, but it's tricky to know the ins and outs of them because we don't think about it and because life keeps changing and throwing us new information and new experiences. So Uh, It's not like you can figure out, oh, this is what meaningful work means to me. And if I get this, then I will have achieved that value. Because whatever you figure out about your career in your 30s, 
chances are that isn't going to work for you in your 50s. It's a process. So, so given that you can't sort of, it's not a one and done type of thing, you can't just sit down and figure it all out and then just go forward on autopilot. Um, because of the way life changes and we change, we're always having to renegotiate what these values mean to us, what it means to succeed in their terms and how they fit together. What are the implications there, do you think, for a sort of moral philosophy, because so much moral philosophy posits values as a kind of bedrock. You know, we we come to understand what they are, and once we've correctly identified them, that's it. You know, there, there doesn't seem to be a lot of wiggle room sometimes for the idea that you're articulating that the self is a, an unstable entity, and we change as we go through life, which means that our values are, to some extent at least, in flux. So what do you make there of that tension between values as a fixed fundamental guiding star and values as something that shift and change? Can we ever arrive at a, a true or definitive set of values, would you say? Uh, as just a matter of my basic philosophical constitution, I'm not big on uh, value lodestones. <laughs> um, I So I tend to think that all values are contingent on their, uh, at least on their being creatures to value them. But I, I think that's okay. And I don't think, I mean, I detect in your question that there's a kind of concern that if things are contingent in this way, and if they're malleable, that will be kind of cut loose and lost. And we don't, we don't have those foundational points to anchors to hang on to. But I'm not so concerned about that because some of our values are so very deeply entrenched that even if they're contingent on our having them, we aren't going to stop having them. We're not going to stop valuing relationships with other people, for example. So I don't think if there is that kind of flexibility of values, it doesn't infect those sort of abstract basics because they are essentially part of most people's psychological nature. So I don't think we're going to end up with the final true interpretation of our values, but you'll probably, I'm, I'm making some assumptions about you here, but you'll probably always value relationships and the life of, a of the mind, making a contribution. Those things aren't going to change, but you know what they mean and how they fit together, that's what changes. And I guess there is often tension between values as well. I might have to make a trade-off someday between the life of the mind and helping somebody, for example. And given this contingency, and given the fact that we are all, to some extent, a mystery to ourselves, how can we come to an understanding of our own values? So in the book I have, I, I lay out five strategies for figuring out what your deepest values are and what they mean to you and how they fit together. I'll mention a few of them here. I mean, the first one is basically introspection, which it gets a bad rap these days. People are down on introspection because there is a lot of evidence that there's lots of things that are opaque to our conscious attention. And so, you know, we can't, we just can't know everything about ourselves, but I think it's still somewhat useful and it's not a terrible place to start. The strategy that I really think is kind of important and maybe undersold is uh, what I call the lab rat strategy, where 
the idea is that you can observe yourself as a kind of as if you were a friend looking at you what would your friend observe and what might they advise you about the goals that you are pursuing given those observations and i think we can take that kind of external standpoint on ourselves by paying attention to you know what things we find incredibly boring what things bring us into a state of flow what are our bodies doing how are we physically responding to the goals that we're pursuing are we experiencing lots of headaches and muscle tension and various other physical signs of stress or are we feeling pretty good and it combines with another strategy which is learning from friends um so sometimes we have people who are loving and kind enough and you know socially adept enough to observe things about us and reflect them back to us in ways that are helpful so a friend might notice that you know hey every time dave every time you go out with your friend joe you come home really miserable and need another drink maybe you don't actually get very much out of that friendship so that kind of thing that was totally made up by the way but that, that kind of thing um i've benefited from friends in that way so that's another way i think we, we can learn I guess the the trouble is that once we have identified what our values are, there's still that very old philosophical problem of resolving the tension between self-interest and broader sort of morality. Because on on one hand, you know, I have my life with my various goals, and and they seem very important to me. But then they become very significant, insignificant by comparison with broader social justice goals. Uh, you know, I might live in a, an area where there are a lot of homeless people, and I could be out there just doing something about that. But then I also have this, I want to become a much better amateur violinist, you know? I mean, is that a goal worth pursuing in the face of the injustice and the suffering that's taking place right outside my door? How, how do you address that question? This is one of the things that people hate most about the value fulfillment theory that I defend. And I'm in philosophy, I'm I'm definitely not alone in having a theory which has this problem. And the problem is that, you know, if your theory is subjective and makes your welfare depend on your own desires or your own values, as mine does, and your values are crappy, you can live well and be a not very morally good person. Um, so that's to say, I think morality and well-being are two different evaluative perspectives. And to ask the question, you know, is it worth obviously pursuing the goal of becoming a better violin player is not immoral, um, but you can still ask the question, is it worth doing given that you could be spending your time actually helping people? And I presume, you know, your violin playing doesn't help anyone. I'm learning the ukulele and I know that isn't helping anybody at all. Um, so you can ask that question, is it worth it? But to answer that question, you would need some third perspective that's beyond both well-being and morality to evaluate which is the more important. And, you know, there may be such a perspective. If there is, I haven't found it and I don't know what it is. Um, but the important thing from my point of view is that they are different and the moral demands on you are sometimes incorporated into your own projects and values. We all, you know, most of us who aren't psychopaths, we have some moral values that 
we want to live in accordance with for ourselves. We just, you know, I, I would like to be a decent person. I'm sure you would too. But morality probably demands more of us than that. And that's life. We There is a conflict between what's good for me and what's morally good. And that raises the whole question about what does morality actually demand? Does it really demand more of me than is good for me to provide? Um, and, you know, I don't have a moral theory, so I don't have to answer that question. <laughs> All right, you're off the hook there. What about, here's one you, you do have to answer. What about conflicts within one's own value system? If I have conflicting goals in my life, I, I just, they're both very important to me, but I can't possibly fulfill them both. Absolutely. And in fact, a large part of the book is about that, about the conflicts and how to navigate them. So in the book, I talk about these three different strategies. And one is pretty straightforward. It's prioritizing your values and adjusting the means that you take to them. So my family is scattered all over the country, in fact, all over the continent of North America, and maintaining close relationships with my parents and my siblings, which is really important to me, it conflicts with maintaining the friendships where I live and also very significantly with my work. So when I was a younger academic, I prioritized work to a much higher degree because, of course, I had to get tenure. Um, but now that my parents are in their late 70s and 80s, my husband and I have decided that we're going to prioritize family now while we while we can and that requires some shifting around and some sacrifices you know you can't take romantic vacations for two if you're spending all your vacation time visiting your your folks um but we decided that it's worth it for that period of of time so that kind of prioritizing and figuring out well what am I going to do to get this goal? Those, those are sort of ordinary strategies that are probably familiar that people use to resolve conflict. And I think there it's important to recognize that your priorities can shift. So you might have one set of priorities in your 30s and a different one in your 50s and a different one in your 70s. The second strategy is, you know, you have two goals that conflict. Well, give one of them up. Just junk it. Now, that doesn't work for those basic values, but it does sometimes make sense to give up on some more specific goal. So I think athletic goals can be a good example here. Um, when I was in my 40s, there are things I thought I would eventually do, like cycling 100 miles. It's called a century. I, that was a goal for quite a while. And I have moved that to my fuck it list. Uh, it maybe was once on my bucket list and now it's on the fuck it list. I'm writing an essay about the fuck it list. So that's a, it's a concept I, I want to get out there in the world. So with, with, you know, athletic goals and goals that have to do with developing skills that you, as you age, you, you kind of slide backwards, um, giving up on things can make sense. But even with athletic goals, I think it's actually a combination of giving something up and also this, the third strategy I have, which is reinterpreting our values. And I think this strategy is really important and we don't tend to notice it. So for instance, you can give up your goal of riding a century or uh, winning the senior games tennis championship, um, but you don't have to give up the broader, more abstract goal of being athletic or being fit. And, you know, career goals also 
benefit from reinterpretation as we age. Many of us have tons of ambition when we're young, and those ambitions don't always pan out exactly as we thought they would. And I think it helps to rethink what it means to be a good teacher or nurse or lawyer or philosopher or whatever it is that emphasizes the contribution that you're making to a a sort of big, valuable human project rather than emphasizing your own particular awesomeness, which is more the kind of thing that you do in your 20s or 30s. One thing that I think is so helpful about this strategy is it's an alternative narrative to telling yourself that you're giving up. I'm not going to ride 100 miles, so I'm giving up. Instead of saying, well, I'm never going to be able to ride 100 miles, but I'm still fulfilling the value of athleticism and and fitness and, you know, being outside or whatever it is. I have a, a final question that speaks to one of my obsessions at the moment, which is failure. I, I, I have this kind of, I'm, I'm really interested in in, in the philosophy of failure and, and, and not succeeding. Because, you know, so much of the positive thinking self-help literature out there is that it has this relentless focus on success. You know, you do this or that and you will thrive. And I'm interested in, in your take on failure to thrive and, and the fact that for many of us, our values will not be fulfilled. Our goals just will not be realised in spite of the very helpful suggestions you've, you've just given. What does value fulfilment theory have to say about that? Or does that lie outside the purview of the kind of thing you're writing about? So first, if you, you know, thinking about my own theory, if you really fail to live up to your values under any interpretation, or you fail to achieve much value fulfillment because your values were unachievable or bad for you, then, you know, it follows from the view that your life doesn't go well and you didn't achieve very much well-being. And I think it's really, at this point, really important to, to observe that many human beings are profoundly unlucky in this respect. So, you know, if your country is at war or you're living in poverty or you're living under an oppressive regime, value fulfillment is going to be hard to achieve. And I think from the moral point of view, that's something that should be deeply concerning to the rest of us. But, you know, for people in the well, maybe the comfortable middle class, we are lucky and we face far fewer obstacles to fulfillment. We still face obstacles, of course, and some people face more of them than others for reasons that might have to do with their upbringing or some particular fact about them. But one of the things I'm trying to get across in my book is that some of these obstacles are things we have control over. And so there's something we can do about it. We can do a better job of figuring out what really matters so we can focus on that. And I think the point of the strategy of reinterpretation is to allow us to think that doing something that's different from how we thought it was going to go, changing our standards, you don't have to interpret that as failure. You can interpret it as living up to the value that you had in a different way that's compatible with the rest of your life. Valerie Tiberius, professor in the Department of Philosophy at the University of Minnesota. The book is What Do You Want Out of Life? A Philosophical Guide to Figuring Out What Matters. I recommend it. I really enjoyed the book. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks so much, Valerie. Thanks for having me. This was delightful. 
And What Do You Want Out of Life is published by Princeton University Press. You'll find publication details on our website. You'll also find more information about Valerie Tiberius. She has a great website herself. That's The Philosopher's Zone, and you can follow us and get all of our past programs on the ABC Listen app. Great to have your company this week. I'm David Rutledge. I'll see you next time. Thank you.